Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Aisha Parla, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Boston University. We'll be talking about her book, Precarious Hope, Migration and the Limits of Belonging in Turkey, published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. The book was awarded an honorable mention for the Association for Political and Legal Anthropology's 2020 Book Prize in Critical Anthropology. So congratulations on the award, Aisha, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Elise, Dr. Arjan. My pleasure <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Um, so at the New Books Network, we like to begin by getting to know our authors. So I'm curious about how you came to anthropology and how you came to write a book about migration, hope, and the limits of belonging in Turkey. So I have a pretty well rehearsed response to this question that I've told and retold over the years as to how, as a graduate student doing pre-dissertation field work for grants that I had gotten on a completely different topic than migration or mobility, um, I came to know and tremendously admire these resourceful librarians at Boazici University's library who were helping me track down archival sources on what at the time I thought my dissertation research was going to be. Um, But I was kind of realizing that the research project looked good on paper, but was not really yielding all that much by way of, you know, interesting worldly material. Um, And at the same time, I was getting more and more drawn into the stories um, the staff were telling me about how they crossed the border in 1989 from Bulgaria to Turkey Um, their sense of betrayal by the Bulgarian communist regime on the Bulgarian side, and then their disappointment with their reception on the Turkish side, despite all the initial um, political fanfare. So I was increasingly riveted by the stories these women um, were telling me, and also by their you know, resilience, defiance, their sense of self-worth as women who insisted on work as a source of self-respect in their country of arrival, where often the expectation, at least on the part of their neighbors and mostly um, lower to middle-class neighborhoods that they had moved into, was that they would now stay at home. Anyway, I finally mustered up the courage to write to my advisor and perpetual mentor, Laila Abulukad, to say that I might actually be, well, not just even tweaking, but switching my dissertation topic entirely. And so with her trademark uh, generosity and her unconditional support, she said, go ahead, follow these stories, follow your intuition. So that was my initial entry into the life worlds of these women from Bulgaria. Though I want to emphasize actually the that the book is based, this book is not based on that fieldwork, which did turn into my dissertation, but not into a book. 
rather, this book is based on new fieldwork I conducted subsequently over the span of nearly a decade after I joined the faculty at Sabanju University in Istanbul, where I taught for a while, um, and and which focuses again on um, Turkish migrants from Bulgaria, but this time on those who arrived not with that much more well-known huge 1989 migration, but who arrive after 1990 and are thus rather um, simplistically categorized as mere labor migrants, as opposed to the 89 migrants who were considered as refugees and given citizenship. Um, but of course, that earlier dissertation um, does inform the analysis here. And it equipped me, I think, I hope, with a wider lens for um, parsing those differences and continuities um, in movement across the border over the long term. Um, so that's the more routine response. <laughs> and one that speaks to an important part of my, you know, academic trajectory. Um, but I also felt like, you know, listening to your question that perhaps I could now take a little distance um, and think, um, you know, in a way that I push the boundaries a little bit more. So I'm, you know, thinking all the way back to my childhood when I was already always negotiating the limits of belonging, uh, belonging growing up in Turkey. I think ever since I started to discern, you know, maybe at age four or five, the gaps between what was spoken at home and what could not be voiced at school or even among my close childhood friends. So my dad was, he still is, an uncompromising atheist and one of the very first vocal critics of the authoritarian, uh, authoritarian practices of Turkey's early Republican regime, as well as of Ataturk, you know, the founding father who continues to be, as we all know, a sacred figure, um, any criticism of whom is not only sacrilege to even some of the secular liberals, but is, you know, punishable by law. So I had to learn very early on when to keep my mouth shut. And also, as I heard news, you know, spoken in hushed voices of another family friend being um, imprisoned for being part of the leftist movement, um, I felt very alienated from, you know, not sharing in the same kind of patriotism that seemed to come so naturally to many of the peers around me. But, so this is sort of the last, <laughs> last, um, last circle, um, it would still take me many more years to reckon with the fact that that estrangement that I felt, that I got so used to, of not belonging, was still very different um, from the one um, that the split life worlds that ethnic and religious minorities in Turkey have to learn to straddle. So even as I didn't participate in the dominant sentiments around me growing up, I could always pass if I chose to. You know, my name <laughs> was never a giveaway to the contrary, right? So it was only when I became intellectually and personally involved with people in Turkey who could not pass as part of the ethnic religious majority, even if they wanted to that I began to reckon with those deeper hierarchies of belonging and um, non-belonging. So obviously reading critical race theory and intersectional feminists 
helped me develop more of the tools, vocabulary that I was lacking to think about something akin to being white adjacent, right? And I think in this book that finds expression in the phrase relative privilege. Um, Now, I don't for a second presume to draw a straight analogy between this experience and the predicament of the migrant women in the book. Um, But I was always thinking about these subtle ways in which one has certain entitlements, if only in terms of the privilege to pass even if one might not have economic security. Um, So the idea that these states of precariousness are not exempt from structures of privilege became one of the main um, framings of the book. Wow, thank you very much, Aisha, for sharing this with us. And we will delve into the main contributions of the book, but I just want to say, you know, what a wonderful way to orient our readers into how you know, you formed this book not only as a graduate student, but as a person grow up, growing up in Turkey with relative privilege um, from a particular positionality. So thank you for this wonderful response. Um, and before we talk more about this, I was wondering if you could orient our listeners to the context of Turkey, particularly for our listeners who might not be familiar for example, you use really provocative imic terms like Bulgaristanlı göçmenler and soydash. Uh, can you take our listeners through these terms and what they capture about particular migrant lives? Right. Um, so I appreciate it that you're starting us off with uh, terminology um, because well, terminology is never just about word choice, right? Mm. And always gets at the heart of often deeply fraught and contested identities, and also the analyst's perspective, and in some ways, analytic and perhaps political commitments. Um, So in my own case, deciding how to translate or deciding not to translate at all and leave as in the original Turkish some of these terms, um, helped me think about my framing in ways that I would not have anticipated before fieldwork. So to start with that first emic term, Bulgaristanlı, which is actually, I think, the one term that I decided not to translate at all and use as such throughout the uh, book. Now, if I were to force a literal translation, I don't know how it would go like of Bulgaria, from Bulgaria. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, which, of course, loses that connotation of migrant altogether, right? So perhaps a less awkward translation would be Bulgarian Turks, right? And Turkish Bulgar Türkleri, or alternatively, Bulgarian migrants, Bulgar Göçmenleri. And in fact, those are the two terms that are overwhelmingly used in Turkey by the public, by the press, and even some scholars of migration. But it is anathema to the migrants themselves. So I guess as the case with most fieldwork, I learned of that, you know, through making that mistake myself. And I still remember how after the first time I used the phrase Bulgarian Turk, Bulgar Turkip, um, my interlocutor at the time, who, who was a doctor, delicately but firmly taught my first lesson. And he said, I cringe to my bones when I hear or get referred to as a Bulgar Turku or a Bulgar a Bulgarian Turk. And quickly I would come to understand that those visceral reactions are 
intimately related to the memory of the violent assimilation campaign that the Turkish minority experienced in Bulgaria from 1984 to 1989, when um, speaking Turkish was banned, um, religious practices were banned, uh, traditional dress was banned, people's names, the Turkish Muslim names they had were forcibly changed to Bulgarian Slavic ones. So there is this avoidance, collective avoidance of the term Bulgarian at all costs, um, and instead, the desire to retain the reference to Bulgaria simply as a geographical location, which is really nicely captured by the term Bulgaristanda. So I decided to use that term throughout the book to honor my interlocutor's avoidance of ethnic identification as Bulgarian with all its injurious memories, while at the same time elevating their attachment to Bulgaria as a place of birth or residence. That's with Bulgaristanum. But of course, um, not all enic categories are similarly unproblematic in terms of you know, the ethnographer's own identification with them. Um, so that's the case with Soidash. It's a much more politically fraught term. Um, so on its own, it's a it's an agglutinated word. The root soy can cover a range of meanings. Uh, from uh, family ancestry, can descent to race, ethnicity, lineage, and then the suffix dash um, means um, some having something in common. Um, and then depending on, I suppose, which root one selects, you could translate it variably as of the same blood, of the same lineage, of the same ancestry, and so on. Typically, it's translated as ethnic kin. Now, in the book, and I guess that's what you allude to as, as provocative, I, I, I opt to translate it as racial kin. And here, this is very deliberate. I want to highlight the inclusions and exclusions based on an understanding of race in Turkey's citizenship regime, especially because the relevance of race continues to be disavowed through the insistence that Turkish citizenship is really civic rather than ethnic or ethno-racial. Um, and indeed, in earlier iterations, in the 30s and the 40s, we see the term urkdash being used instead of soydash. And with urk, which corresponds word by word to race, there is no you know, such possibility of, of, of interpretation. Um, also, racial kin, has an emic resonance, the migrants' own emphasis on the Turkish blood in their veins. Um, and that's another reason uh, for choosing that term. Also, I'm sympathetic to Azat Zanagundoan's uh, recent translation of Soydash as co-sanguins. So I think that's a really good translation to capture that blood connection. I kept with racial kin because I wanted to retain the kinship angle because there's so much in the book about the logic of nationalizing kinship and how that logic is um, written into the legal regulations on migration. So, so Soidesh, in fact, is a term with such legal underpinnings. Um, to be more specific, the settlement laws, um, which in Turkey constitute the key body of legislation um, to regulate migration, all the way back from 1926 to all its subsequent iterations up until 2006, 
stipulate that a migrant is only and exclusively someone who is of, quote, Turkish descent and who has ties to Turkish culture, end of quote. So let me just pause on that for a moment because this definition is a step further than uh, a kind of migration understanding typical of most nation states, right? Where there is always a hierarchy of migrant desirability, whether that is in terms of assimilability or ethnic affinity or economic capital. But what we have here um, is the making of Turkish descent a prerequisite and not just a preferred feature, right, of who can qualify as a migrant. And that is something I've often had to do extra work to explain to some American audiences because, you know, the marginalization of migrants is universally familiar. Less familiar is this non-recognition of people not even as migrants, if they're not of Turkish descent, right? And, and in legal parlance, um, people who are not Soydash are foreigners, right? Even if they sort out their papers, they always remain as foreigners, which is a good segue into my final point about the significance of this term Soydash, which um, not only nationalizes kinship, but I think also racializes belonging and harkens back to a history of exclusion um, that population engineering that began during the transition from the empire to the nation state and endured well beyond it. This is a history around which there is still collective amnesia in the public culture at large, but academic scholarship, of course, has demonstrated over and over again, in fact, that the making of such a homogeneous Sunni Muslim and ethnically Turkish citizenry began with the Armenian genocide, the forced population exchange with Greece, and key for my purposes, the active recruitment of migrant populations such as Soydash, the Bulgaristan, right? So, so I'm not just talking about the Muslims who fled the violence um, at the turn of the century as nation states were forming in the territories like the Balkans that the Ottoman Empire was losing. I'm also referring to continued migrations from the Balkans after the founding of the nation state with laws that were put in place to justify the transfer of property confiscated from non-Muslim minorities and especially the Armenians killed or exiled the transfer of that property to, um, to Soydash. And I feel, I feel compelled to emphasize this deeply entangled history of the resettlement of Soydash with the genocide and dispossession of Armenians and, and um, non-Muslim minorities, especially because for many still, including people who would identify as progressive or liberal, Soydash as an inetsimic usage still remains a rather, you know, innocent, if not flattering designation, and that deep, violent history of which they would rather not think about. And to get a little bit personal, most recently, a reader of my book, not a social scientist, but a highly educated classmate from my high school, called me out for what she deemed were irrelevant references to the Armenian genocide when I was talking about the Soydash, right? She alleged it had nothing to do with the story that I was telling about the 
Bulgaristan migrants. And this is a singular anecdote, but I think her resentment was representative of this desire to cling to the history of Soidash as only a history of their ethnic and religious persecution in the Balkans, which of course is true, right? But also to remain ignorant of the ways in which that suffering and plight is also imbricated in a history of being the desirable prospective citizens of the new nation state, right? The constituent elements, as the term goes, the Ibla, the Fatihan, the children of the conquerors. Wow, that's fascinating, Aisha. And, you know, even like your terms kind of speak for themselves. Like even as you uh, talked about these terms to us, you show us how, you know, precarity or relative privilege are actively produced by the law, um, which I found fascinating. And no wonder you got the APLA award. Um, And my next question is about another side of this legal production. So you show us that the law actively produces multiple kinds of hope, hope that is attainable yet precarious at the same time. Uh, And you illustrate this beautifully also through some concepts uh, like entitled hope and precarious hope, which are intertwined. So can you take us through this theoretical framework and how um, your framework speaks to broader debates on hope? Sure. Um, Indeed, that's the second major theoretical intervention I wanted to take. Um, The tension that I was just talking about between precarity and entitlement, I also wanted to see how it plays out in relation to hope. which led me to think about the ambiguities of hope um, rather than assume it to be this, you know, unequivocally positive thing that it's sometimes taken to be, often taken to be, whether in activist slogans, um, you know, political speeches, or strands of both theological and revolutionary um, theory. But before I address those implications um, for broader approaches, let me begin with the narrower uh, scope um, that that you asked about the the legal production of hope. Um, So one side of the coin is is the notion I propose of entitled hope, right? Bulgaristan migrants are hopeful of legalization in a rather unique way when compared to other migrants um, in Turkey. They hope with a sense of entitlement through their claims to this status as soydash, through their claims to ethno-national and religious belonging in a way that migrants hailing from Iran, Afghanistan, um, sub-Saharan Africa, and most recently, of course, Syria do not and cannot. Um, The regulations themselves bolster that hope, not just through historical precedent, so to think back to that history of, of granites, granting citizenship since the founding of the Republic and even settling migrants with property, um, but also they bolster hope through contemporary regulations that create these exceptions and amnesties for this group of migrants only. So the hope here then is not hope against the odds, 
not the kind of hope uh, popularized by um, the philosopher uh, Stegners, who, who in fact um, dismisses even or disqualifies anything as hope if it's not hope against hope, right? It's not the radical hope of Jonathan Lear that one cultivates at moments of ontological crisis. This entitled hope that I pursue is following Hassan Hajj, um, the unequal distribution of the grounds for hope um, among migrant groups who are differentially positioned um, in terms of in terms of uh, inclusion. Um, so, so the Bulgaristan have a reasonable expectation that they're going to fare better. Um, but if that's one side of the coin, right, entitled hope, the other is the title of the book, um, Precarious Hope. Um, and it's economic precarity, for sure, but it's also cultural disapproval or you know certain kinds of stigmatization in relation to what is perceived as their lacks or excesses, right? They might be branded as too attached to communism, as not religious enough, um, as not abiding by gendered codes of um, modesty. Um, so, so there is an expectation, but there is no guarantee. Um, the law promises, but it doesn't. It doesn't really. Um, guarantee legalization. Um, one of my interlocutors has this phrase that I love and, and use in the, a book. Um, she said in a line um, that we were waiting um, that they were creating constantly this gate of hope, referring to the you know, legal officials. Um, so what I tried to show is that this legal production of hope and the ways that it is um, appropriated by the migrants has both the potential to enable or disable um, depending on the context, depending on the object. Um, let me try to put a finer point on what's kind of abstract. So on the one hand, I saw how hope for legalization, how hoping day after day enabled my interlocutors to persist despite all the uncertainties, right? Despite all the amnesties that are whimsical, the arbitrary implementations, um, despite all the waiting. Um, but I also observed how hope can kind of lead to an idealization of the object. So often citizenship, that ultimate goal when attained could fall short of the expectation. Um, Lauren Berlin, of course, talks about this as cruel optimism. Um, and finally, and this is kind of the, the bolder move, I guess, this hope can also reinforce an exclusionary system in the sense that identifying with certain practices of hope can become complicit, even if unwittingly, in exclusionary acts, right? So to the extent that the Bulgaristan, the migrants embed themselves in this nationalist narrative of belonging in their quest, right? To the extent that they claim 
our religious ethno-national identity as the most desirable um, combination, as the most deserving combination for citizenship, um, they're also reiterating that kind of hierarchies of exclusion that render other migrants not as deserving, not as um, fit. So I guess what I'm trying to do is to reckon with that ambivalent nature of hope um, in that quest as usual, my my guiding uh, light or starting point was uh, literature and um, especially the poetry of Yeats and Dickinson that so beautifully captures that ambivalence of hope, right? So Yeats pairs it with dread, Dickinson with a sense of, of fleeting. And then in terms of anthropological theory, I was inspired by Cheryl Mattingly, who depicts the paradoxes of hope. Um, Peter Redfield's notion of residual hope, um, rather than other kinds of approaches that position hope to be kind of this sacred thing beyond critique, right? Um, Jessica Greenberg has noted this tendency really well when she talks about how hope has become almost this aspirational horizon in which scholars seem to be increasingly invested right? If the world keeps giving us disappointment, as ethnographers, we keep wanting to locate hope, right? And and I think you see that aspirational horizon running through as diverse thinkers from David Harvey to the philosopher of hope, Ernst Bloch, to Rebecca Solnit. But frankly, I was much more intrigued by, you know, Terry Eagleton's intervention, his book, Hope Without Optimism, where he, you know, just gives free reign to his irritation with Blochian hope um, and and its derivatives where hope takes this cosmic sacred quality. So just as I recognized how hope was a source of perseverance, of fuel to to cite uh, Zigon for my interlocutors, I also did not want to ignore um, that darker side, which did not allow my account to be an entirely redemptive narrative on hope. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, And, you know, that's why I'm particularly excited to have you on the Mobilities and Methods um, channel. And, you know, I really want to ask you more about, you know, these methodological challenges, so to speak, that surround privilege. Uh, But now... You know, I want to ask you about, well, what appeared to me as the comparative nature of your book, so to speak. And, you know, I'm not sure what uh, your critical friend would think about this, but um, to me, the lives of African migrants and the life and death of Festus okay seem to haunt the book. And, you know, that makes perfect sense when you're talking about, you know, relational concepts like privilege. Um So did the juxtaposition of multiple migrant lives and their legal makings inform your thinking about precarity and privilege? And if so, how? Mm -hmm. It absolutely did. Um, and, And I would say that some of the key animating insights of the book come from that activist engagement, even as the focus is not on the lives of migrants from Africa or um, Afghanistan or, or Syria. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right about the haunting and and the exposure 
in the activist work to the structural vulnerability of migrants who don't qualify as soidash was integral to developing my framing of, of relative privilege. Um, in terms of the timing, um, there's about a three years of overlap between the field work I did for the book and my stint as a member of the Migrant Solidarity Network, which was a group um, formed, I want to say in 2012, um, by lawyers and activists and academics who wanted to direct attention to the predicament of undocumented migrants in Turkey when, you know, it was becoming an obvious phenomena, but wasn't really being talked about and trade unions weren't sympathetic, right? So there was really no, no solidarity discourse around undocumented migration. And um, one of the things we did, we started off doing actually was uh, protesting in front of um, um, a migrant detention center in Kumkapu, which of course is a touristic hotspot, right? Um, and the center was at the time called um, euphemistically or ridiculously as a as a migrant guest house. Um, it had bars, like bars. Uh, even uh, lawyers, even from human rights groups, weren't allowed to access it routinely. Um, so we were doing these protests um, in front of the migrant prison house. Um, we were doing regular solidarity events for fundraising. And on the other major event, um, the group took on was the court case of Festus O.K., whom you pick up in your question, um, a case that had stalled for several years after the murder of Festus, um, an aspiring footballer from Nigeria, um, who had been first detained and taken into custody pretty much for walking in his own neighborhood after midnight. So I looked at the court records and the police testimony, and it says exactly that. He looked suspicious. I called him over. He wasn't doing anything. He just looked suspicious walking in that you know neighborhood at that hour. Um, and then during the interrogation, he was killed by a bullet fired from the gun of the officer interrogating him. Now, at the time that we became a party to the case through, you know, presenting petitions, and this was obviously on the advice of um, lawyer colleagues, we would not have known how to go about it, which apparently was an act of libel. So we were all charged with libel and disrespecting the court and so on and so forth um, and had to testify. Um, and eventually acquitted. But all of that did draw some attention to the case, which had stalled because key evidence was not being pursued. You know, the camera was broken, supposedly. The the blood-stained shirt went missing at the hospital. Um, and the police officer was still on, on duty. Um, you know, all of those things that we all know too well from policing in the U.S. of how it's really difficult to prosecute the police for abuse and violence and murder. Um, in the end, you know, thanks to the per persistence of those lawyers who kept up with the case long after, you know, the Migrant Solidarity Network um, had, you know, had lost track of things, um, the police officer was finally convicted with um, murder. But out of all that came the animating question for one of the chapters, right? So how is it that an undocumented migrant is arrested for arousing suspicion by walking at night um, and accidentally killed during his interrogation? 
while another undocumented migrant that I described in that chapter insists on walking into a police station, knowing her status has expired, knowing she may be deported, pleads with a police officer, says she deserves, you know, this amnesty and, you know, gets away with a paternalistic warning, right? Not even, um, not even deportation orders. Um, so of course there is race here undergirding the difference. There is the idea of being soydash or not. And the other contrast um, that that I kept grappling with um, is of course along gender lines. Um, so the migrants from Africa or the former Soviet Union are you know far more likely to be selected for inspection for um, identity checks. Um, and Bulgaristan women are less likely to be stopped. It does happen. When it does, they have much more bargaining power once they present themselves as Soydash. Um, women for, uh, from Africa or the Soviet Union are always um, suspected of sex work, and they're much likely to be abused or raped by the police, whereas um, Bulgaristan, the women can perform all kinds of, you know, racial and religious intimacy as they move through legal and public space. Again, I don't want to suggest that just because they claim this status as soydash that they're safe. I mean, we know that women in general are far from safe and being a woman can be the unforgiving equalizer. But I still think it's important to think about degrees of protection and uh, immunity, um, depending on one's class position, um, ethnic identification. Um, and, and, and again, then this comparative angle between the Bulgaristan migrants and other migrant women um, is important. And again, I think it's a balancing act, right, to recognize that ever present potential for violence that can be inflicted on all women. And on the other hand, to um, acknowledge the the distribution, the differential distribution of that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for you know provoking us to think along these lines. Um, and you know, you mentioned some of your work with the Migrant Solidarity Network, and in the book we see that your ethnographic fieldwork is coterminous with this activist work, if, um, you know, correct me if I'm mistaken. Um, however, your work um, as an activist seems almost at odds with your role as an ethnographer and friend of uh, Bulgaristan women. So I'm curious about where you locate yourself in methodological debates, particularly those concerning activist anthropology. What are some ways in which your activist work enriched and limited your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a tough one. Um, okay, let me start with the, with the empirical fact that I, that I immediately saw in the field that for many of my interlocutors, the activism was something that they ignored <laughs> or barely tolerated, 
right? I mean, in some ways, for, for the and and I think there are generational differences here, right? For some of the migrant women of the older generation who had experienced state violence, um, they were cautious um, because they had seen how family members who had been activists had been um, persecuted by the regime. Um, but I think um, it was also their, precisely their relatively privileged position that they really had this hope for legalization that they also differentiated themselves from the rest of the migrants and did not in a way want to jeopardize um, their chances. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not, I hope I'm not making an argument for the ultimate irreconcilability between activism and ethnography. And I think we have amazing examples by my colleagues, you know, from Miriam Tickton to Heath Cabot, um, to Jessica Greenberg, who've shown how those things go hand in hand. But I think I am making an argument for cautioning us against the ways in which those two things might not always go hand in hand. Um, you know, the easy, <laughs> easy target is the kind of activism that uh, Rebecca Solnit, who would seem to suggest that, you know, academic activist scholarship is always the way to go and it's unproblematic and, you know, hope um, is this kind of civic protest and action. But the problem is in her work, that action is assumed to be universally legible, right? And the agents of that action somehow constitute a self-evident uniform we, which I think is very much a first world liberal and predominantly white we. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is we need, again, just to be good ethnographers and pay attention to the context and see the ways in which those two commitments can complement or be at odds with an, uh, one another. Um, but I think ultimately, as much as I want to um, recognize that sometimes the collective we of the Migrant Solidarity Network did not, not quite um, map on to the, um, to the immediate goals of the migrants that I was engaged with as part of my ethnographic fieldwork. I want to think that ultimately those are productive tensions. And, and I think those you know, frictions are exactly the kinds of things that I want to grapple with and not uh, shy away from. Um, and then just on a practical level, I mean, this was part of the difficulty, but, 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 but in a way easily resolved, I never, you know, really made my interlocutors feel like they were obligated to become a part of that activist work and and so i i kept them apart and 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 that's also partly why that you know i draw at least in this book clearer lines between what ethnographic um material i use as my evidence versus the kind of activist work that informs all of that but stays in the in the background that's fascinating <laughs> and you know throughout throughout the book you actually do a balancing act um you know towards all these tensions that can 
suggest particular things, but you're so, you know, articulate, art, yeah, articulate in showing how, um, you know, what you see in your fieldwork does not necessarily mean that we should do away with activist anthropology. Um, but yeah, but just to pay attention to what is going on and what um, our communities are telling us. So I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you spent quite a bit of time uh, in lines and queues um, with your interlocutors. So I was wondering how the act of waiting, the time bureaucracy takes and standard standing still informed your fieldwork on mobility and migration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, lines, <laughs> lines are pretty much where most of the fieldwork happened. They're also where I wanted to kind of bound the fieldwork, um, for reasons also of ethical considerations where I felt like I wanted to, um, keep distinct some of the more personal things from the, um, from the material that I would, in the end, use in the book. And, and I'm going to just say something about how that distinction did not always um, work out or wasn't easy to sustain. But, but, but I guess the first thing, methodologically, that I want to say um, is that the, the waiting in lines was an opportunity for me um, in the sense that those legal spaces gave opportunities for me to be useful or feel useful to my interlocutors. Um, I was able to help fill out applications, you know, make appointments, ask questions, request documents, sometimes even try to negotiate on their behalf, though I really don't think I ever did it with more savvy than they. Um, But still, they offered a, a degree, a very modest degree of reciprocity, um, you know, and this is something we as anthropologists always worry about, as we should, about the one-sided nature of, of our exchanges with our interlocutors. Um, now, of course, I don't want to, you know, um, I don't want to overemphasize the reciprocal nature of, of that field work at all. You know, at the end of the day, I would go home. Um, even if an application had failed, that was a productive day for me, right? Because I had this material about why it had failed. And it was a day of disappointment, a day of exhaustion for the person who had also stood in line. Um, also. And this gets at that attempt of mine to separate some of the more personal stuff and to kind of delineate the boundaries of what justifiably constitute material I could use. I mean, I was always transparent that this would turn into a book, but relationships are, you know, they have a life of their own and people tell you more personal stories. And even if they know that you're an ethnographer, um, they entrust you with these stories, not necessarily thinking how much of it will, you know, end up in the book. So, so when you're waiting in line for hours, <laughs> a lot of stuff comes up, right? A name might be a reason for a romantic reminiscence, right? A revelation can come up. 
uh, a painful memory can come up. And so I kept those things out, you know, and, and I hope I've been a good judge of that, but I really didn't include as, you know, as incredibly poignant some of those things that were that came out waiting in those lines. I just kept them out of the ultimate version. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. No, it's it's very, um, I guess, important to hear that what does not appear in the book is an important part of writing the book. Um, and yeah, this <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy uh, talking to authors like yourself. Um, now, when you're waiting in these lines with Bulgaristan women, um, some of your interlocutors also probed you to hope with them uh, through expressions like "Do not kill my hope." So, do you consider participating in hope as part of your methodology? Wow, um, that's a great question and one I had not thought of in those terms. Although I did think a lot about the reverse of that question, right? So, what it meant to be cautious, what it meant not to participate in hope, um, to be the ethnographer killjoy, to gloss Sarah Ahmed's feminist killjoy. Um, okay, so the straightforward answer is definitely yes. Um, although I'd probably say that I was just kind of doing it, doing the participating in hope without necessarily intentionally designing it as part of my methodology. Um, and your question also makes me wonder if, and I might be out on a limb here, but bear with me. If partaking in the hope of one's interlocutors is perhaps a feature of many ethnographies that are not even necessarily about hope, right? So I think this question you're asking might touch the core of something really interesting about the enterprise of ethnographic field work itself, or perhaps even life and relationships in general. Right? How much of our human interaction is constituted by participating in the hope of our loved ones, um, of our significant others, of our close friends? And conversely, how much we dare kill their hope when we think it is needed. And of course, it's one thing to dare kill hope with one's loved ones and another with one's interlocutors, as I was reminded precisely in that instance that you quote where, you know, I was gently scolded not to kill their hope when I was pointing out that, you know, oh, nothing might come out of this application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And that's definitely... Um, something I'll be thinking about more after <laughs> we end this conversation. Um, but, okay, this might seem counterintuitive, but I want to turn to the very beginning of this book, the cover. Um, the image on the cover, like, you don't address it uh, in the text, but the image is so, such a delicate and poignant image that I think really captures the spirit of the book. So I was wondering if you could tell us um, about the cover. Yeah, I'm so glad that you think it captures the spirit (laughs) of the book because I thought it absolutely captured the spirit of the book. And um, so when the wonderful team at Stanford University Press asked me, you know, if I had anything in mind, 
not necessarily, you know, soliciting my opinion to choose the cover in the way that I would tell them, but just to get a sense of, you know, what what I wanted and what I didn't want. Um, I came across this image and instantly fell in love with it because it was, you know, all the baggage of migration, literal, physical um, suitcase. But then it wasn't an image of devastation, you know, the kinds of horror stories that are always, um, you know, told in the press to galvanize certain kind of emotions. You know, it's this girl who has her doll and she's combing her hair, right? So it's not an image of desperation. It's certainly an image with a lot of poignancy and vicissitude, but it's not an image of, of desperation. And I love that it turned out not surprisingly, that this was a photograph by an amazing photographer who I discovered in this process, so I want to credit him here, um, who kindly gave us permission to use um, the image for the book cover. And and one little um, sort of detail, a happy note, um, he took this picture during that 1989 um, migration wave that I spoke two years ago after you know the publication of the book he did an interview at a local newspaper and they printed this image and um the girl with the doll now a grown-up woman found him and now they have (laughs) they have another picture and she kept the doll so they have another picture you know with the photographer her and and the doll on the on the cover Wow, that's fascinating. And I love how you know, the cover does some of the work of um, showing your contributions. You know, just now you mentioned that, you know, it's not an image of desperation that we're um, accustomed to see across media, for example. And that's where I see one of your key contributions. So I really enjoyed how you articulate the cover through that. Um, that's fascinating. Um Lastly, what is next for you? What are some new projects, pieces of writing, or even classes you're working on right now? Okay, that's a really broad question that is also um, still something that I probably haven't gotten enough critical distance from to talk about very lucidly, so I'll try to keep it brief. But right now, I'm deeply immersed in my current book project, which most broadly is about the afterlives of um, the Armenian genocide. And it is um, about ghosts and cemeteries and dispossession and haunting and vengeance as an emotion that I'm um, thinking about. Um, And if in some ways I was thinking about hope as not necessarily the, um, as not only a positive kind of state of affect in the first book, here I'm perhaps doing a little bit of the opposite with vengeance and thinking about the need to confront and reckon with vengeance in cases where um, denial and evasion um, 
continue. So in some ways, there is a trajectory uh, between the first book um, and thinking about hope, but but now honing in on on, um, political hope and thinking about not just hopeful claims of inclusion based on being soidash or based on racial kinship, but this time thinking about the refusals of historically dispossessed citizens to participate in hopeful imaginations of a national um, future. Um, But it'd also be a very different kind of book, more historical, um, more suspenseful in suspenseful in the in the narrative structure that I'm thinking about centered around one historical figure for each chapter. Um, and and in many ways I thought it was a good omen when I realized that for the first book, uh, Sebald's Emigrants had been an original source of inspiration for me. But then I had really thought about that book as a story of migration and displacement and fractured belongings and all of that is true. But rereading it, I'm of course now seeing how it's a book about present absences and and national complicity. Um, So I think Sebald is going to leave his imprint on on my book project again um, with the very same book, which I'm now rethinking in a very different way. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. Um, We'll be certainly looking forward to this work. And thank you very much, Dr. Parla, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much, Dr. Arijan. It was a pleasure. (laughs) The pleasure is all mine. I'm your host, Aliza Arijan. This discussion of Precarious Hope, Migration and the Limits of Belonging in Turkey, published by Stanford University Press in 2019, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>